Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to Series 2 of the FT Business Books Podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Helen Barrett, the FT's Work and Careers Editor, and I'm joined once again by the FT's Voice of Business and Leadership Wisdom, Andrew Hill, Management Editor. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Hello. Throughout the series, and to mark the opening of the FT McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award, we will be reading and discussing the best books to help you through turbulent times, chosen by our top commentators. Today, Andrew and I are joined by Rana Faruha, the FT's global business columnist, and herself a writer of business books. Welcome, Rana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hello, Rana's Choice, The Attention Merchants, Tim Wu's pivotal 2016 book on how our time and attention is harvested and sold. But before we get to that book, Rana, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I actually just finished Richard Bookstaber's uh, new nonfiction book on the financial markets entitled The End of Theory. And Richard is, is a very interesting person. He was the former risk manager for Bridgewater, which is the big hedge fund, of course, run by Ray Dalio. He also worked in the SEC and in the U.S. Treasury Department on a new kind of modeling of financial markets, one that's based more on sort of human heuristics rather than complex mathematical formulas. And he's calling for nothing less than a revolution in economics that would get rid of the neoclassical model and bring in a more human kind of modeling that should supposedly, according to him, make markets safer. Andrew, have you read this? No, I haven't. But uh, Richard Bookstaber's earlier work was, I think, chosen as one of the long-listed books on our book award. So uh, he's got good pedigree. I'd like to read it. Rona, you're a business writer yourself. Your book, Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business, was shortlisted for last year's FT McKinsey Prize. Can you describe for me the process of business writing? How how do you decide on a theme? Well, painful, more painful than having children, actually. (laughs) That's what I would say. Um, You know, I had actually in my author's note for that book a kind of a a little note about how in some ways the book was really the culmination of almost 30 years of business and economics reporting in the sense that it dealt with why business industry has sort of been co-opted by the financial markets. And, And in some ways, over the course of these decades doing stories, I would watch business leaders taking decisions that I knew might be good for the quarter but wouldn't necessarily be good for their businesses longer term. So I had all this sort of historical data flowing around, but I had a kind of a come-to-Jesus moment at one point in 2013. I was working in the U.S., and I was having an off-the-record meeting with a former Obama administration official who was talking through the administration's handling of the financial crisis, and we had a conversation about the Dodd-Frank regulation that was coming up at the time. It was only about half halfway written. And he was insisting that lobbyists, uh, financial lobbyists, hadn't had any impact on you know, loopholes that were being created in that legislation. 
And I noted that 93% of the meetings that had been taken around the financial regulation were being taken with the banks that were being regulated. And he looked at me and said, well, who else should we have taken them with? And that was this weird sort of, oh, my gosh, I have to write a book. There's so much cognitive capture in the financial sector and amongst regulators even, that they have no idea who else they should be speaking to. So, you know, it's sort of a long-winded story, but it it encapsulates the fact that you have all this experience in reporting, but then you often have a moment where it crystallizes and you say, yes, I have to write this book. And when you're writing, who who do you imagine are your readers? Well, I kind of imagine people like myself. You know, I'm not necessarily a financial beat reporter, but I've covered business and economics. I consider myself a well-read generalist on a lot of topics um, in the business sector. And I wanted to produce something that had a big idea at its center, but was also very readable. Because I think that actually, you know, I, I, like you, have tons of books coming across my desk. And I'll often find books that have great ideas in them, you know, but you can barely plow through page 20 because they're written in such a sort of jargonistic way or technocratic way or they're too narrow. And to me, what makes a truly great business book is a big idea that is also just a great ripping yarn. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, what do you think? A great ripping yarn and a big idea. Well, Rana's book definitely meets both those criteria. And I mean, what I'm interested in knowing, Rana, is whether the whether the work that you'd done before, how much of that was sufficient for the writing of the book? In other words, mining your old notebooks, as it were. And, and how much did you think, oh, I'm really going to have to start again with the contacts yeah. I've got and go and ask them this critical question? Well, it's interesting because I, I think I had the typical uh, journalist's um, naivete that I could just go back and mine my old notebooks and, and sort of go with that. But the truth is that I think a great book, and not just a great business book, but any great book, is really more than the sum of, you know, 10,000-word um, 10, stories, you know, or, or, or whatever it is. You, you don't just put together a bunch of old pieces into a book, I think you really have to reconnect and rethink these narratives, which for me then, because I'm, you know, at core a reporter, that came down to having to make a lot more phone calls and doing a lot more reporting. Um, And in fact, I probably spent, you know, of the three years start to finish that it took me to write this book, um, I would say half of it was re-reporting, talking to sources, updating, and kind of, you know, thinking and tweaking those stories that I may have had in my head, but then recrafted to go into the book. I suppose the question I often wonder about what it's like to write a business book is, what do you do with the rest of your life? If it takes you three and a half years (laughs) to write this thing, what happens to everything else in your life? Oh my gosh, yeah, good good question. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, my employer at the time allowed me a couple of three-month sabbaticals. So I did take off at the beginning, kind of three months to really help shape the idea, do the initial reporting, and put together the first chapter and the sort of outline of what would come next. I then juggled, frankly, you know, my day job, which uh, I was working for a different publication at the time as a financial editor and economics columnist. And, you know, that was okay, because actually, when you're doing a book like mine that has something to do with current affairs, I think it's not a terrible thing to actually still be in the news cycle and be thinking about how these ideas, which have a longer narrative ban, fit into today's story. And and I think it's very tricky, actually, um, because books in some ways have become the new magazine articles. You know, I mean, they have a shorter time span. I think in the past, someone that wrote a book like mine might have taken five years on it, seven years. You know, now three years is 
the longest that you might take on a, on a book like this. So you really do have to do a lot of juggling. That's, that's what I found anyway. Andrew, what did you find? Did you stay in the news cycle when you wrote your book? Well, my book was made up of lazily of columns that had already appeared. So uh, <laughs> I, I, cleverly, I cleverly found out... Anthologies I'd, are fine. I found I'd written 75% of it before I started. So that was a good, uh, that was a good starting point. I think I would, be, I, I would feel pretty daunted by going back to you know, start from scratch, as it were. But there are things that nag away at me as bigger ideas. I mean, I think the um, what you're describing, Rana, of being able to stay in the cycle. I think Gillian did. Gillian Tett, our colleague, did the same yeah. thing with her book, The Silo Effect, which I noticed. That's right. She drew on some of the interviews that she'd been doing for columns. The columns appeared as the book was being written. And I'm assuming I haven't spoken to her about it. That that, that is was part of how she managed to do both at the same time. Uh, no, absolutely. And in fact, she was a big support to me um, on my book. And we were quite close. And I was watching her while she was writing The Silo Effect. And I thought she was very creative about taking a news story that she might have been working on or covering or watching and then finding the part of that that maybe didn't belong on the front page but would feed the book and would feed a more sort of anecdotal column. Uh, and, and I think you really do have to do that as a journalist. You've, you've got to be prepared to juggle. Yeah. And Rana, what would your advice be to readers who are new to business books? Where should you start your business reading? Oh, gosh. Wow. I wish I had a list of sort of top 10. <laughs> I think anything by Michael Lewis, to be honest, is, is just a great way into what business writing can be at its best. I mean, you know, there's a reason he gets paid like $20 a word <laughs> or whatever he does for Vanity Fair, because, you know, he, he is a man that, um, you know, having been a trader himself, has intimate knowledge of the financial markets, is also just a cracking writer and seems to be able, um, which makes me very jealous as a journalist, to find that one perfect anecdote, that one trader in Texas who saw the crash of Iceland coming, you know, that, mm-hmm. that can make up the sort of nut graph of something that tells a much bigger, deeper story. Um, and so, yeah, I think he's he's top of my list. Totally agree. I think Michael Lewis is the the starting point. But then you might say, going back to your point about books being the new magazine article, that some of the long reads that you can now get, which are somewhere between the day-to-day reporting or column and the uh, and the full book, they often become books. And it's worth looking mm-hmm. at those as well as ways to uh, craft longer narrative. No, that's true. And actually, there's a, there's a wonderful new imprint uh, that Columbia Journalism School and Columbia uh, International Affairs Program in New York have have sort of done together where they take roughly 30,000 word books and, and put them out. They're, they did one on populism that um, did very well. And I think in some ways that might be the future. Andrew, what have you been reading in the four months since the FT Business Book Podcast has been away? Well, a, a lot of things, both business books and, and novels. I mean, the one that I single out as a, as the novel that I enjoyed immensely in between podcasts was um, uh, the Man Booker Prize nominated My Bloody Project by Graham McRae Burnett, which is a novel, although it is framed as though it is the discovery of fragments of a of a Scottish crime in uh, the uh, uh, 19th century crofting community. Now, you're going to ask me whether there's a business or management yes. angle from this. <laughs> I think actually what it's mainly, <laughs> what it's really about is about the psychology of an individual, in this case somebody accused of a bloody crime, 
uh, in this crofting community. And there's quite a lot in it about the way in which experts at the trial, uh, in the crofting community and others play into the ultimate fate of this man and his alleged victims. Try not to give anything away here. I mean, the other point that I suppose is a, in the very broadest sense, a a management point is it's about this highly feudal society and the way in which the various ranks with the crofters at the very bottom of the pyramid react to the people who have been appointed to be their overseers and then react to how they interact with the aristocrats and landowners who oversee the overseers is really you know all about the stuff of hierarchy the kind of things that I write about every week about teamwork and authority and command and control. I didn't think about all those things when I was reading <laughs> it, but it is it, it is really a cracking read and uh, and absolutely uh, impossible to put down. And a feudal society is in many ways a big theme of Rana's choice of book, our book of the fortnight. Rana, you've chosen The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. It's got two titles. It's called The Attention Merchants in both the US and the UK, but the UK has a slightly different secondary title from the US version. In the US, it's called The Attention Merchants, The Epic Scramble to Get Inside Our Heads. In the UK, it's called The Attention Merchants, From the Daily Newspaper to Social Media, How Our Time and Attention is Harvested and Sold. It was published in 2016 and it sets out how in nearly every moment of our waking lives we face a barrage of advertising enticements, branding efforts, sponsored social media, commercials and other efforts to harvest our attention, contributing to the distracted, unfocused tenor of our times. Rana, what makes this a great business book? Well, I love history. I love business history and I like big ideas and I like great narrative and this book has all three things. It really is in some ways a history of advertising. You know, it starts out with the the penny broadsheets, newspapers that became tabloids both in the US uh, and the UK, how they first harvested advertising as a business model. Um, if you go back to the 19th century, it's interesting because newspapers were for a long time the purvey of the wealthy. You know, they had very small circulations. They went out to what would have been the 1%, you know, back then. Um, they were really subscription-based models, which is in some ways actually what the FT is. <laughs> yes. um, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, and, and that's worth saying because we're actually circling back around to a subscription model. And, and this book takes you all throughout the last hundred years how advertising rose as a business model in newspapers, then in radio, through war propaganda, which, you know, it, it really sheds a whole new light, actually, on those sort of posters that you see. You know, people have, have framed now for nostalgia purposes these wartime posters um, and how they were used as propaganda and to harvest people's attention and, and cement opinion during wartime. It goes on to talk about the rise of, of television, uh, the rise of cable TV, that original sort of fragmenting of audience that cable TV brought us. And then, of course, into the more recent world of computers, the Internet, mobile and social media. And, you know, re reaching the apex right now, I guess, in politics with, you know, in the U.S., we have a president that is essentially a reality show star and has kind of turned <laughs> the Oval Office into a reality show. But but what's so interesting is this book really illuminates how we and our attention 
is the product. We are the customer of these different forms of content, Instagram, Twitter, um, you know, BuzzFeed, anything that's sort of high-speed digital internet and social-based media today. We're customers, but we're also the product because our attention can now be tracked and harvested so carefully and sold back to us in such an insidious way that, you know, it really has huge political ramifications. And this isn't in the book, but uh, but I do know that if you overlay the way in which voting patterns have become much more extreme, it does correspond to the fact that people are now remaining in their informational silos that have been very, very carefully tailored to them. Uh, and that's all a result of, of the attention merchants and, and these advertisers and how they've kind of, you know, taken these various forms of media and used them to their own devices. Andrew, did you enjoy the attention merchants? Yes, I, I loved it. I didn't think that, uh, I don't think we're going to disagree on the uh, on its quality. I, I also like the way in which it re- wove the narrative and the and the history and the absolutely super topical element of uh, what is happening now to our attention and how it's being harvested, which is a great word in that uh, subtitle. I mean, the um, the historical perspective was absolutely fascinating to me, and he throws up a number of examples from the past which resonate today. I mean, the one, the one that I liked was going back to the 1860s in Paris, where there was a backlash against garish Parisian posters being stuck up everywhere. Again, the kind of posters that would be now highly collectible. And that triggered regulation on street publicity that is still in place in Paris. Which is very French. Yeah, very French. But his point, I mean, I guess his overall point there is that backlashes are not new against advertising and publicity, but also in a more perhaps sinister way that somehow, even with this uh, level of regulation that comes in, even regulation that lasts more than a century, advertising always finds a way to creep back mm. into consumers' consciousness. And I, that's, I think, a very useful um, lesson, and if you like, uh, warning. And, uh, I mean, as Rana was saying, the issue about today and the use of social media uh, uh, turning ourselves back into the product being sold to ourselves and others, you know, pictures of all-too-beautiful families on holiday enjoying themselves are the kind of new <laughs> new product, if you like, uh, on Facebook or other social media. I think one of the issues there is, he says, it's not a question of whether advertising itself is you know, moral or immoral, good or evil. It's how these attention merchants conduct their business that is going to decide what happens next. And that is placing an enormous weight on advertisers who, quite frankly, will probably always race towards the most profitable model at the expense of what might be a um, a not entirely good way of getting into our minds and uh, and lives. I think one of the strongest chapters that illustrated that was the chapter on the history of the early days of advertising in the middle of the 20th century and the counterculture in the 1960s and and, and how he managed to explain very vividly how Pepsi and other advertisers managed to harness that counterculture that was anti-consumerism and somehow flip it around and use it to sell Pepsi, which was incredibly clever, and you. I love that chapter. Too. It was wonderful. Yeah, it's funny because I grew. I don't, you know, I don't know if they ran this exact same commercial in the UK, but I grew up with that commercial where everyone's holding a candle and singing about soft drinks, and you sort of it's very, you know, hippy dippy and sort of come together, and you know, it's amazing because I had not realized until I read this book 
but actually Timothy Leary, you know, tune in, turn on, <laughs> drop out, Timothy Leary, was given his his catchphrases by an attention merchant, Marshall McLuhan. Yes. Uh, you know, one of the great the great ad tycoons. But I think it's fascinating. Actually, I think that that, that chapter is pivotal to, to understanding not just the 70s, but I think where we are politically, both in the U.S., and in the UK and other parts of Europe now, because what happened was part of the idealism of the 70s was based around diversity, right? You know, it's a good thing. Let's be more inclusive. Let's all embrace our own identities. But the attention merchants were much more clever, really, than the the, the political um, forces at, at harnessing that idea and then using it in a way that ultimately, I think, has led to something that political activists from the 60s and 70s would consider nightmarish, which is radical politics. Um, you know, far right and far left forces that you see in the U.S. and the U.K. now. And I was fascinated to see how some of the market research that had been used by political ad, uh, advocates was then used to create cable television and very niche marketing to different identity groups which, of course, then led into the Internet sites that we see today. I mean, in the U.S., a site like Breitbart, for example, is, is sort of uh, the new Fox. Uh, so you get people staying in their very politically narrow silos, and the same could be said on the left. And so people aren't touching in this serendipitous way that they might otherwise if we weren't being so carefully targeted, segmented, divided, uh, and monetized. I think it's interesting that you mentioned Pepsi, obviously, because they've just had this um, car crash of a of an advertising <laughs> um, <laughs> of an advertisement actually right in this 60s style protest. Can you describe what happened? Well, essentially, the they produced Pepsi an ad crash. with uh, featuring uh, Kendall Jenner, the model, which showed protesters eventually offering a can of Pepsi to a police officer. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping straight to the <laughs> so punchline there. Oh, um, but it was, you know, widely condemned, ridiculed. It was said to be trivialising the, the, the very real protests of things like Black Lives Matter, about police mm-hmm. killings, black people in the US. And uh, they've had to apologise. I think that does demonstrate that there are still some limits about what advertisers can do. And but how they an, can encroach on a counterculture. Yes, but what's... Interesting about that to me is that actually that's not the most insidious type of advertising, as we've been saying. You know, the whole social media getting inside what people are doing and using what they are themselves saying to promote products and to create a feeling towards a particular product is much harder to spot than a massively expensive full-on, almost traditional television-style ad like the Pepsi one that they had to pull. And he saves this, doesn't he, till the third half of the book. So you you have the first, the the third third of the book, I should say. He, you know, so you have the first third and the second third, which are full of these sort of fascinating history, recent histories of harvesting attention. And then the third third is just terrifying, isn't it? It just changes direction completely. (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's terrifying, but it's also, I actually find the, the very last couple of chapters sort of hopeful because he writes about how, you know, there there have, well, we learned that there have been rebellions in the past. People have said enough of this. We don't want to be marketed to in this way. And that in some ways it's happening now with the rise of subscription models, um, Netflix, a paper like the FT, um, HBO, you know, premium cable channels or premium products either in print or on the Internet 
that people will pay for in order to actually get the content. And I think that that is really fascinating. On the one hand, I find that very heartening that people will pay for quality. I mean, frankly, you know, all of our livelihoods depend on that. Um, but, but I also find it, uh, it's going to be interesting because it starts to once again create a, an informational have and have not. Um, because if you think about who can afford to buy higher quality content, versus who will be continuing to just access what's for free um, and, and largely of lower quality online, you start to see, again, that kind of political polarization that's both part and parcel of, of the attention merchants and their har- harvesting. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a sort of... Well, I wrote a um, column about this earlier in the year, and I spoke to some ad agency uh, executives, who one of whom said to me, you know, the industry's got to act with... His phrase was self-interested, self-restraint when exploiting the new technology. But of course, as you suggest, Rama, there's there is this risk that you know many will not act with self-restraint when it comes to appealing to those who can't afford to pay for an FT subscription or a, or a Netflix subscription, or find a way of filtering out uh, advertising that has this insidious effect. Um, yeah. And so you begin to get that division, and the advertisers who are at the top of the tree may well be able to uh, promote themselves as being above uh, moral opprobrium, but they won't be the ones who are creating the damage necessarily. And also, you know, there's the entire sort of mathematical underpinning of all this, the algorithms that allow advertisers to just seek out and target um, us based on our socioeconomic profiles. You know, I mean, the fact that you and I are probably not going to be receiving ads for, say, predatory student loans, but we might be getting ads for, uh, you know, I don't know, vacations in uh, in Dubai or jet skis or, you know, there's such a deep way in which the technology now allows people to be turned into products. Uh, I find that very disturbing. And I also find it disturbing that in the U.S. we're in the process of deregulation now of, of communications under the Trump industry. So I, I expect this problem is going to get worse, not better. Yeah, and I think there's, there's also an interesting crossover in algorithmically, if you like, with, with uh, the sort of cyber, cyber attacks and, and hacking mm. and spam, which was, after all, uh, started as a very, very base form of advertising. I mean, these are all mm. things that are merging and making it quite hard, I think, to distinguish between when one's been sold something and and when one has simply been the kind of victim of of an attack. And eventually there's somebody in the many millions who are targeted in this way who will allow their information to be harvested, to use Tim Wu's excellent word. What do we know about Tim Wu? We know he's a Columbia professor and we know he invented the term net neutrality. Andrew, do you know about net neutrality no, not really. Sorry, I'm not <laughs> Rana, really an expert there. <laughs> well, net, net neutrality is this idea um, that's very popular in tech circles that, that the web should essentially be, you know, you shouldn't have toll roads on the web, that you shouldn't, just because you're a, a bigger player, a bigger company, your content shouldn't get preferential access. And this is a big debate uh, in the U.S. right now. I mean, as I say, that there's a lot of deregulation of communications. There's going to be big fights between broadband providers, the cable companies, the telephone companies that own the underlying wires, and some of the biggest Internet uh, companies, Google, uh, Facebook, um, Apple, you know, all of these 
firms, it's very interesting, they're, they're all attention merchants in a way, but they have divergent interests in terms of their business models. And so they're going to be duking it out in Washington <laughs> and probably Brussels and, and London over the next few years over who gets what part of our attention and our pocketbooks. And what, what's missing from the attention merchants? Do, does he, is there anything that he's failed to include or that you think he could have done better? I mean, arguably it would have been a book twice as long. And as we've already discussed, it does clearly link because advertising income has been the basis for media empires uh, through the centuries. But you know, arguably he could have written more about the growing crossover between media and advertising. I think that's one thing that could have been addressed, but that may be simply because as a journalist, it's the it's part that is uh, that is interesting. And, and possibly uh, we are putting too noble a gloss on our own profession and the way he depicts it may be more accurate. We are simply a sort of a pimple on the top of this huge mountain of, uh, of media, uh, which is essentially paid paid media advertising. Rana, what do you yeah. is, is there anything missing from the attention merchants? If you had been writing it, would you have? Well, I would have liked. I mean, I you know I agree with Andrew that it's already a long book and it would have had to have been longer still. Um, <laughs> this is always, by the way, this is this is a tricky thing when you're. I found with my book too when you're writing about an industry, in which to really understand it, you need to understand the deep historical roots. Yet you also need to talk about what's going on in the present, and you're always torn between how much history do I put in. How much current news do I put in? Am I going to somehow get caught out in the production cycle if I make it too current? So that's a real struggle. But I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about the political economy of Silicon Valley and how the big giants are essentially trying to recraft regulations right now to suit themselves. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, um, having written a, a book about the financial sector, the financial sector is very rapacious and has huge lobbying power. Well, Silicon Valley is just as rapacious, has huge lobbying power, and thinks it's doing God's work. You know, so there's a kind of a holier-than-thou <laughs> attitude, um, you know, that, that is very dangerous. And I would have liked to see him uncover that a little bit more because Google, Facebook, all these firms are have got the biggest lobbying operations in Washington right now, and they are just as rapacious as any big bank. I wonder if he, he maybe thought that he'd be revisiting old turf there a bit, because, I mean, his previous book in 2012 was about the master switch, was about the rivalry between um, big corporations, so possibly steered away from that. I agree, though, I think the the, the politics in the, with the small P, and indeed, you know, the, the, the big politics, he's probably grateful that he didn't touch too much on the... Mm political scene, given everything that happened as the book was coming out last year. Well, but, that's uh, true. You're always a rip. Although, you know, in terms of repeating yourself, as one of my mentors once told me, never be afraid to repeat yourself if you're right. an author or a columnist. <laughs> and Rana, we should, we should uh, disclaim that you share an agent with Tim Wu. I do, I do. <laughs> I share the most wonderful agent in the world with Tim, but that had nothing to do with, with the book, I assure you. And can you tell us, just before you go, what's next on your reading list? Oh, boy. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of heavy nonfiction, and I think I'm going to pick up a novel. And I, I may I may turn to Andrew for suggestions. I'm, I'm not sure yet. Andrew, what's your suggestion? <laughs> well, you prob you've stuff? probably already read it, but I'm, I'm following up on a friend's recommendation that I need to read A Prayer for Owen Meany by John Irving, which oh, I'm my God, going yeah. through. I, uh, I haven't read any John Irving, actually. So uh, that's what I'm enjoying at the moment. And I, that, I think, doesn't have 
any management implications that I can see so far. So we probably <laughs> won't be discussing that one in future. But that's all I and after that, what will you read? Well, we're, we're getting into the phase of the uh, Business Book Award, which we just launched, where we start to filter what's what's coming up for that. As I say, the uh, the, the Bookstarver book that uh, Rana mentioned is an attractive prospect. I'm uh, I'm always interested in the kind of um, corporate histories, so I'm always on the lookout for something that's uh, going to come up. And there's a new book that I saw that had come out in February about the uh, uh, what's been happening with Zappos and uh, Tony Hsieh's um, Las Vegas. Uh, entrepreneurial ambitions, which I think might be one that the management editor should uh, take a look at. <laughs> you can join the discussion. You could even suggest a corporate history for Andrew or maybe a novel for Rana to tackle next on her reading list. You can join the discussion on Twitter by tweeting us at FTWorkCareers using the hashtag FTBizBooks or you can email us at businessbookclub at ft.com. Join us again in two weeks' time when our guest will be the FT's work and careers columnist, Emma Jacobs. Her choice, Overwhelmed, How to Work, Love and Play When No One Has the Time by Bridget Schulter from 2014. Until then, my thanks to Rana Faruha and to Andrew Hill and to Yanina Conboy, our producer. And thank you for listening. <laughs>